you're a perfectionist, you need to hear this. Perfectionism really is about, at root, a need and, and a desire to prove to everyone and all around me that I'm good enough, that I'm worth something. That's Thomas Kern. He's a professor of psychology and the author of a landmark study that the BBC hailed as the first to compare perfectionism across generations. And in his brand new book, The Perfection Trap, he lays out the major problems with perfectionism, why perfectionism is way more widespread than we might think, and most importantly, how to overcome it in your own life. And I had the opportunity to sit down and talk to him. So the book is available now wherever you get your books. But without further ado, here's my conversation with Thomas Curran. Thomas, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Greg. I always find it really interesting how people land on the topics that they study. So could you tell us a little bit more about why you chose perfectionism and sort of how you got to this point? I was putting a lot of pressure on myself through university and graduate school. Um, I, I, you know, overcompensating, I think, a little bit um, because I've, I grew up in a small town and go, moving into sort of a more, I guess, middle class world. I just saw everything and all around me that people were so much better. They were working so much harder. They were so much smarter. They were so much brighter. And, and I put a lot of pressure on myself to try to compete. Eventually, I kind of just burned out. And when I reflected on that process, it was really that kind of those kind of perfectionistic beliefs, you know, must be perfect, must do better, must always do more, work harder, that was creating a lot of the psychological difficulties. So I looked out into the field, uh, couldn't see much work in this area. And what work there was didn't really take what I believe to be like a big enough lens as to say, looking in it more of a societal issue, a societal problem. Uh, and so really started to delve into the topic in a great deal of depth. And the, here I am 10 years later. How do you go from this is a problem I'm struggling with and and uh, I'm recognizing in myself to looking at the field, realizing not many people are, are looking into it to being the lead author on the the first major study to, to really look at this across generations? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a long process. Any Anything in uh, psychological science can be very granular, like tiny little building blocks. So you do a lot of very um, intense lab studies or maybe survey-based research, which look at a very specific component of a very specific literature. And that's the same for perfectionism. You know, we were really in the weeds of this topic, looking at how it impacts our mental health, what are the mechanisms that lead it to... Uh, contribute things like depression, anxiety, burnout, um, how do pe re perfectionists respond to things like failure and setbacks. So all these great studies and, and some fascinating findings, but very minute, right? Very in the kind of very weeds of this of the, of the topic. And one of the things I was noticing in myself, in my friendship groups, and also in the young people that I interacted with on a daily basis at university was that, you know, this is a huge problem. Like, you know, everybody around me seems to have some kind of perfectionist tendencies, even if it's, you know, on the lower end of the spectrum. We're thinking about how we look, how we appear, how we're performing. And, you know, my students began to come to me more and more with issues to do with their mental health, issues to do with the self-imposed pressures that were putting themselves under and like trying to figure out how they can how they can manage those feelings. Really, that was impetus for me to be like, well, hold on a minute. Like, yeah, we can get into the weeds of this issue, but then there's something going on here and we need, we need to take a bigger picture uh, perspective of this thing. So over the next three or four years, I just set about a task, just collecting in my spare time. You know, this wasn't part of my day job, really. Evenings, weekends, I was just kind of looking at 
whether I can retrieve as much data as I possibly could on perfectionism. Um, and then to see, you know, what's happening over, over a period of time. So are we, can we detect any changes uh, that, um, in terms of young people's reports of perfectionism? And I collected about 30 years worth of data. And what we see is something remarkable. Perfectionism is, is indeed increasing. This is kind of my hypothesis, but it's, it's a social element of perfectionism, which is really, really spiking right now. The, the, the sense that other people and everyone around me expects me to be perfect. That's up about 40% since the late 1980s. Pretty concerning because, because socially prescribed perfection is the element of perfectionism most strongly correlated with um, psychological difficulties like depression, right. anxiety, self-harm, etc. So, so that's really concerning. And obviously that was, I, I guess that's what brought a lot of media attention. That's why it's called a landmark study. Uh, that's why I did the TED talk. And ultimately that's why I wrote mm. the book. So I'm, um, so I hear that. And my immediate thought would be uh, that that perfectionism is on the rise, specifically socially prescribed perfectionism, excuse me, it's perfectionism is on the rise um, as a result of social media. Have you found that that's the, the cause primarily? Yeah, we've, we've, this is not a causal analysis that we did. We kind of just looked at the trend. So, you know, we can't definitively say if it's one thing or the other, but certainly we do believe that social media and other social media has had a huge impact on young people's perceptions of, you know, they need to be perfect. Um, and we, we kind of, we kind of can make a reasonably good guess that social media has a role to play because it kind of starts to spike. It starts to really curve upwards in about 2007. And that kind of coincides with the advent of iPhones and social media being just got transported into our lives 24 seven. So, there's definitely a role for that, but there are other pressures out there. You know, schools have become more competitive. Colleges have become more competitive. The workplace is more insecure and it's become a lot uh, self-imposed pressure for people to hustle and grind. So, you know, and parents have also changed their behavior, parenting behaviors and expecting a lot of, of young people from an early age in response to those pressures at school. So there's, there's a whole collection of things, but I think social media is probably the primary driver. So this is a good opportunity. Um, uh, one of the things I loved about the TED Talk was it kind of painted this larger picture of what perfection, perfectionism even is uh, for me. So I've always viewed it as related to specific tasks, right? So I might be making a piece of content. And if I'm a perfectionist, I might struggle to get that thing out because I'm looking at every single detail and trying to make this perfect thing. Um, but something that you really sparked for me was the connection one, it's it's much more uh, uh, insidious than that. And two, it's directly connected to the systems that we've grown up in. And and so I look at myself and I think of myself not as a perfectionist. I don't really have a problem putting something out that's 90% of the way there instead of 100. But when I think of perfectionism in the way that you've painted it in, in the TED Talk and in your book... I realize, oh, I actually have a lot of perfectionist tendencies that I didn't realize I had. So could you walk us through kind of the differences of how people tend to think about perfectionism and what you found to actually be um, the, the thing that people are dealing with? For sure, yeah. So there's a conventional wisdom that perfectionism is about high standards, excessive goals and striving, uh, which is true. But actually, it's only half the story because perfectionism really is about at root a need and, and a desire to prove to everyone and all around me that I'm good enough, that I'm worth something, that I matter. And so really, if we want to get into the root of this of this issue, we have to understand that it's, it's perfectionism is a form of deficit thinking. 
is a, a feeling that I'm not enough and I'm not perfect enough. And my whole uh, sense of self and being is really bound up in this idea that I have to prove to other people all the time that I'm worth something. So I have to continually get positive feedback, approval, validation from others. That's a crucial component of the perfectionist sense of self-esteem. And so all of the effort, all of this striving, all of these, you know, what we see on the surface, this overwork and overachievement is really a compensatory mechanism for feelings of lack and feelings of deficit. And that's why it's important to differentiate perfectionism for other things that look like perfectionism that aren't things like conscientiousness, meticulousness, diligence, perseverance, all these really positive things that come from a very active and optimistic desire to grow and develop. Perfectionism doesn't come from a very active and optimistic place. It comes from a very defensive place. It comes from a need to, to, to conceal and hide the inner imperfections that we feel from the world around us. That's the crucial distinction. And, you know, perfectionism isn't a black or white thing, right? It's not a kind of, I'm a perfectionist or you're not a perfectionist, right? It's very much a spectrum. And so, you know, some people score high, some people are highly perfectionistic, like they really worry about impression management and concealing their imperfections from others. Other people are less concerned with doing those things, right? They're a bit lower on the spectrum, but they still have a little bit, right? And most of us are in the middle, kind of the average. And what we're seeing in the, the data that we've analyzed is that that average is slowly creeping upwards so that more and more of us are becoming more perfectionistic um, over time. Mm -hmm. And you talk about uh, looking at the, the larger systems attached to this. Uh, you talk about the effects that like grading culture in schools might have or uh, the way that that parents might interact with their kids that may sort of like lead to some of these things. Could you dive a little bit into to just the larger societal factors that lead to this sense of I'm not good enough and I need to, to keep sort of striving? Um, but then attached to that is the larger um, view in society of like how we define success, like how we typically look at a person and say they're successful and versus someone who's not could you dive a little bit into that absolutely so this is this is kind of where i landed really my thinking when i was writing the book we can we can really look at all these different areas of, of life right modern life for social media parenting uh workplace um schools colleges but i think what we're missing when we look at each take each of those components individually is kind of what what binds them together and what binds them together is that we live inside a system that needs us to keep consuming, keep producing, keep working more than it needs us to be content. Now, why is that? Well, because if we didn't consume, we didn't work, we didn't produce, then our economy would disintegrate. It would spiral into a recession, right? Because, you know, consumption's down, jobs are lost, jobs are lost means businesses close businesses close me more jobs are lost and all the, all the rest of it so in a sense our whole economy really spins on an axis of discontent in the sense that we need to continually update our existing life circumstances in the search for something more right that's the kind of that's what that's the linchpin of this whole economic system now don't get me wrong this is this system has worked for many many decades and and, and brought us up to a period of abundance where you know elevated um, western economies to to a point which we really enjoy now the trappings of abundance we kind of solve the issue of scarcity i suppose right life expectancy is is high infant mortality is low it's kind of brought us out of 
um, a period of economic underdevelopment. However, unfortunately, we aren't able to stop there. We have to continually search for more, continually do more, do better. And that means that schools are competitive. That means that colleges are competitive. That means that advertising has become even more vociferous and aggressive and, and, um, and targeted, right? Through not just analog advertising, but social media, which is essentially an advertising device. You know, it sells us these kind of images of perfect, the perfect life, the perfect lifestyle, the car, the house, the family, all the rest of it. Uh, and then targeted, targeted us with ads so that we try to improve and always update. Uh, it's the same for the workplace. Um, there's a grind and hustle culture where the impetus is on the individual, on you to continue to work, to do more, to lift yourself, to make something of yourself. Um, in the world and all of this pressure all of these pressures really are weighing on young people in particular but everybody but young people certainly in particular and they're internalizing those pressures and those expectations as pressures to be perfect and i think that's what we're seeing in the rise of perfectionism i know you're a professor so forgive me for trying to get some free lessons here but uh, i, I want to jump back to something you just said which honestly sits so perfectly in in something i've been personally struggling with uh, so you said our whole economy spins on an axis of discontent. Um, that is something I've I've been coming to terms with more and more uh, over the last seven and a half years of doing this podcast, because one of my original goals was let's try to simplify the process of living a better life and, and make that as accessible, both from a time perspective, a cost perspective, and from like a, a knowledge perspective as possible. Um, but I realized over the last few years that there is only a demand for this show. Like this show is only successful and only has listeners because there is a lack, because the person listening to it needs something, because they're in a position that is not as ideal as, as it could be. Um, and also because they have that sort of built-in desire and motivation to try to change that. Um, how do you think of that where your book, the TED talk, the, the work that I, and outside of academia, the work that you're doing exists and is valuable because there is a problem that needs to be solved, meaning people are, are suffering with this and, and people are in a system that uh, reinforces this. And yes, that's great. You get to write a book, you get to, to do all of these things and hopefully help in some ways. But in an ideal world, there would be no place for your book. How do you navigate that? This is the, the whole really, uh, I guess, key message of the book. There is no perfect. There is no ideal uh, world or universe that we, that we all exist in. We can think about ways to improve the system. We can think about ways in which we can curb its excesses. And that's, by the way, what used to happen throughout the 50s, 60s and 70s. There were many, many problems in those areas. Don't get me wrong. But we had this government that was large and that was able to curb the excesses of um, an economic system, which left untreated can lead to all sorts of problematic outcomes, in particular, wide and gaping inequalities, which have massive impacts on the quality of life for people lower down the social uh, hierarchy. And I think, you know, I think that's the best way to look at these problems is not to try to search for what's the ideal solution, but how are we able to uh, navigate what is an, uh, a very successful and useful economic system, but manage it in ways that it, uh, that, that it can help improve the lives of everybody. And, and thinking, let's take technology, for instance, because technology is coming through the pipeline now, right? This is a very useful experiment because if 
because technology could be used in two ways. It could be used to maximize shareholder uh, return. That's to say, you know, it can put people out of work because the productivity uh, gains that we get from technology means that the work for, of, of, of people is not needed. And we can take those productivity savings, those, those economic savings, and, and, and siphon them up to the top. Or we could actually use technology in a very different way. We could use it to liberate ourselves from the drudgery of work. That's to say that we can take the productivity gains and give them to the people who are going to benefit from, from that work being taken away, give them more leisure, give them time in their communities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not about really searching for a utopia, but it's about trying to understand how we can, how we can use the, the, uh, the proceeds of growth, right. In ways that improve the lives of everybody. And I think one of the, I think key messages in my book really is, is for us to accept and understand that, you know, these feelings have a broader context, right. So this is not your fault. I think that's the first thing to take the weight of personal responsibility away from these feelings. Why can't you snap out of that feeling of never enough? Well, you're kind of supposed to feel never enough. Like that's just kind of how the system works. Right. So, so just understanding that is a lot of power. It, it is, is a lot, there's a kind of liberation in that, in that discovery. And from there, you know, to try to manage, uh, um, our perfectionism to try to within that system, try and let go find more contentment as to say accept ourselves be more self-compassionate but also additionally advocate for um uh, political movements and changes that will help use you know all of this abundance and all this uh, wonderful um uh, you know society that we do live in you know and that does have its problems but we do you know technological innovation uh we live in you know life expectancy is high um disease is low we, we we do live in a you know in a in a very advanced economy and society but there's but we just need to find ways to manage um that economy that in a ways that would improve the lives of everybody and i think there's no perfect solution but i think that's that's really the key message in my book. so something I, I i love that you just touched on um and is becoming a, a larger part of my message as well is the the conversation around it's not your fault um, there is, I think, in personal development uh, as a, an industry, there is a need for that industry to continue existing to uh, paint the person who purchases whatever coaching program or whatever it is. Um, if that doesn't work, it's because that person didn't try hard enough or because they didn't want it bad enough or uh, whatever list of, of reasons that is ultimately boils down to it's your fault and this worked for other people. Um, and I find that there has been a lot of healing amongst my audience once I started switching to a message of like self, I, I call it self-empathy. Um, I think in your TED talk, you were, you called it self-compassion, but uh, a message of like being kinder to yourself at, at the end of the day, recognizing that the system is kind of stacked against you and you can do what you can do, but there's going to be an enormous amount of sort of obstacles on your path to try to be better or, or do more, whatever it is your specific goals are. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about uh, how you've seen self-compassion help in this conversation of like being a perfectionist and, and constantly striving for better, more, 
um, great or whatever, whatever it might be. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing for perfectionists is that there's a sense and a need to control everything, to perfect everything, to, to constantly happen in the world. And as you've just explained very eloquently, it, that isn't the way the world works. The, wor the world is um, chaotic. <laughs> it's unpredictable. You know, <laughs> there are going to be things that come out of, you know, heartbreak, grief, health scares, a global pandemic could come in and screw everything up. And this has got absolutely nothing you can do about these things, right? That's just fate and fate's nothing personal. However, for the perfectionists, it's a really difficult message to take because they take everything personally, no matter what's going on in the outside world, somehow it's their fault and it's their responsibility to fix. And I think for me in my own rehabilitation for perfectionism, the biggest turning point was when I understood that actually I can't control everything. And that life is almost like trying to ride a sailboat over the, over the waves, right? You have a general sense of where you're going to go, the direction you need to travel, but conditions are going to dictate how fast you get there and at what speed. And, uh, and there are going to be days at which, you know, you don't go anywhere because there's no wind to take you. There are going to be days when you're fighting against that headwind so hard, you feel like you're just going to collapse. And then there are going to be some times when a tailwind comes and pushes you merrily on your way and that's just the way that life is and i think sometimes being able to accept like you say be empathetic when things don't go don't go quite to plan knowing that that's just part and parcel of the journey um is almost like taking a sledgehammer to perfectionism like this idea that we don't constantly have to happen and control and perfect things all the time and we can let things go and they haven't gone quite so well is is really really therapeutic so that message of empathy that message of compassion is is so crucial. So how have you gotten that to stick for yourself? Because um, you, you use the the language uh, just now in your sort of recovery from from perfectionism. Uh, something that strikes me is this is such a societal problem. Um, this is such a, it's almost something that starts outside of the individual and then gets infused into them as they navigate the world. So when you have all of these uh, external influences that are driving you towards thinking in this way, how do you get that message to stick for you that it isn't your job to fix everything that you don't need to constantly strive for better and, and so on and so forth? How do you get that to actually stick with you? Well, it's really tough, but for the exact reason you you've just stated, because you live in a world which makes that the almost the most difficult thing to do that acceptance the most difficult thing to do and by the way you know the, the acceptance is not created equally right i grew up in a poor community right to accept that the world sucks is really tough because that's the difference between losing your tenancy or getting thrown out on the street you know if you just accept you know ah oh, you know all this is going to happen to me well, actually, it can be quite catastrophic in that sense that, you know, not trying to push through those circumstances because, you know, that could mean, that can mean the, the difference between having a roof over your head or not. And so I'm really, it, one of the things that I think a lot of self-help misses when they talk about this kind of embrace of vulnerability and authenticity and all of this is that, that it's much easier for some people to do that than it is for other people to do that, which is why it isn't just an individual problem to fix. It's a societal problem to fix because we need it to, to build communities and societies that allow us to embrace our imperfections, to be vulnerable, to accept that the world won't always meet us where we are and that that's okay. Because the implications of that acceptance for one person are very different for another person. So this is, this is why it's so crucial to take 
a kind of, you know, a societal lens, a broader lens to this. That doesn't mean, however, that there aren't things you can do in your own life to try to push back against that impulse, that pressure. And I do think we've talked about self-compassion, but it's not just self-compassion. It's also about trying to uh, challenge your perfectionistic thinking in ways which are important. So put yourself out there try and do uncomfortable things even if there's small steps forward it's really important so if you don't think you're a very good public speaker for instance well put your hand up to do a presentation at work and just go through the anxiety the worry the discomfort that that engenders and sit with it don't try and avoid it go around it don't try and recycle it into anything else just let it in right and as you find more comfort in this situation you become more emboldened you become more confident and you feel that that need to impression manage all the time starts to slip away and finally the 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 final one is failure because our relationship with failure in this 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 society is kind of screwed up really we 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 recoil from it all the time Um, and and we try to recycle it all the time into things like growth or excellence right like you know if i fail i've got to recycle it into growth what can i learn how can i develop which is good but it doesn't have to be the case all the time. And I, and I think if we can see failure not as something to be challenged or removed, but as something to be embraced as an important part of our fall- of, of our humanity, you know, sort of being a fallible human being, that's what it means to fail. Then also I think that that shift in relationship is also really, really helpful. But yes, it's an individual, but it's also a societal problem to solve. I really like that idea that failure doesn't actually have to be a lesson. Um I think that that's another thing that in this industry, as you do, you read the books and, and so on and so forth, like that, that's almost like the first thing they say, right? Is like failure is not failure as long as you learn from it, as long as it, it still has value for you, as long as you choose to think of it in a certain way. And I kind of like the idea of like, it's just a thing. Like it doesn't have to be a lesson. It doesn't have to mean you stop. It doesn't have to really mean anything other than in this moment, it didn't work out. I think, do you know what? That's so, so important. And as, as, as my, my thinking matured and as I moved towards the end of the book, I, I do put a sort of um, asterisk by the growth mindset and this idea that, you know, we always have to learn and develop from our failures. I think often in failure, actually, there's nothing to learn. Like, you know, you did the right thing. You did everything right. You prepared, but you just had a bad night's sleep. Or you came up against someone just more privileged, you know, like it's had uh, <laughs> more training, more money spent, whatever. These are things that you can't control, you know, like um, I, I, as a kid, I was a young athlete, but I was a very late maturer, you know, uh, so I didn't make it through the selection process because kids who came through who were who were developing and maturing earlier were stronger, fitter, faster. Not my fault. Nothing I could have done with that. I was born with the with that with that in you know in my genes. <laughs> Just one of those things. Again, that's fate. <laughs> you know? And fate's nothing personal. And that's really important. So if we're constantly trying to turn our failures into learning opportunities, growth opportunities, then then that doesn't allow us a psychological space to embrace that failure. Just part and parcel of what it means to be a human being as, as part and parcel of what it you know it, it means to exist you know you're going to fail i think it's the thing you're going to fail way more than you're going to succeed you know like 250 of the 251 riders in the tour de france are not going to win the general classification yeah, like 49 of the 50 people who start wimbledon are not going to be the champion 
you know, we're going to fail way, way more than we're going to succeed. And I think understanding that that's just part, that's what, that's so, that failure so intimately revealing what it means to be a human being is, is, is a really good philosophy to take with you through life. And that doesn't mean you don't, you can't learn from it. That doesn't mean you don't want to grow and develop, but that just means that you don't have to do those things all the time. I think there's there's a part of this conversation that, uh, in my mind, we're we're kind of like floating around. That when I think about the 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 industry that that I'm in and the people that are listening to this show that are probably consuming three other podcasts, have read fifteen different books. So perfectionism, we talked about how it's it's related to the task. We talked about how it's it's a general sense of like. I'm not good enough. I need to do more and be more and and, and uh, win sort of like recognition from others and, and that validation. Um, but there is this like conversation here of what, like how do we pursue better without it being a symptom of perfectionism, I guess is, is what I'm trying to ask. There's no problem at all. You know, I think, one of the things I try and impress in my book is that, you know, obviously the biggest message is let's try and slow down. Let's not try and mac maximize. Let's accept that sometimes good enough is good enough. But that doesn't mean to say that you can't be ambitious. That doesn't mean to say that you can't have goals for yourself. That's just to say that you've got to understand that you're not going to get there overnight. And that, you know, it might take you longer than you originally anticipated, and that's okay. And you might hit setbacks and periods where you actually feel like you're going backwards, and that's also okay. You know, there's nothing wrong with the with the out, you know, having an outcome, a goal, and even an aspiration or even a lofty goal. Nothing wrong with that um, whatsoever. But I think we just got to engage in the embrace of that goal, the, the shooting for that goal in a much healthier way than the perfectionist would, which is to put everything and all of themselves into it and go in on themselves when things don't go don't go to plan. So as I said earlier, you know, this idea that being conscientious, being diligent, being meticulous, persevering, these are all really positive, healthy ways to strive because they come from that active and very optimistic sense of, you know, the, 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 the journey, the process, it's the most important thing. <laughs> and you can let it go when it hasn't gone quite to plan, knowing that it's just one step back on a, on a, on a broader journey. And the conscientious people are exceptionally good at being able to know when the line is stop send something off, put it in, don't procrastinate, don't worry, don't forensically tinker, but just know, okay, I worked hard, I put the effort in, I've produced something, let's get it sent off and then to the next thing and then to the next thing. So, you know, there are way healthier ways to strive than a perfectionism. And as I say, I think conscientiousness, being conscientious is, is one of them. And I think that that's the, probably going to be the hardest part of this for, for people listening is getting from uh, or rather better understanding the line between this is healthy ambition and drive that's serving me in some way versus this is actually doing damage because I'm, I'm holding on to these things that are maybe unnecessary. Um, and it, it sounds like it's, it's just like everything else in life, unfortunately, a long process to learn how to do that for yourself and to learn how to, to recognize that. I think that the biggest lesson, and this is sort of important for young people, but important for everyone, but important for kids and young people is to always tell, tell them straight up, this is going to suck. <laughs> and you're going to suck at it. As well. <laughs> like when you first try something new, because that's the whole point of the process of learning like you're not going to pick something you're not going to pick up a guitar and play hotel california straight off the bat it's just not going to happen 
It's going to be years and years of arduous, deliberate practice, right? And if you're upfront about that straight out the gate, then that is the most important thing you can be because that instantly kind of makes people feel that it's normal and natural to struggle that they're, they're not going to be the, the, you know, it's kind of person they see or idolize straight away. It's going to take time. Um, so, you know, I think that's, I think that's super, super important message uh, for people to know and, and not to get put off by that, not to get, you know, not, not to get disenfranchised by the process, actually embrace the process, see the process as actually the, <laughs> you know, the enjoyable purpose filled part of, of of just learning something uh new so yeah i think that's that would that's a good way to look at look at this so this makes me think of a um i'm i'm sure everyone listening to this has seen it by now it's a very old clip i believe it's from ira glass uh when he talks about the gap between uh when you when you're starting something creative and you have I think he uses the term taste, but you have like a sense of like what it should be and how it could be. And, and you have a good vision for it, but there's a gap between your vision and what you want to execute versus the actual skills that you currently have. Uh, and where most people end up giving up is in that gap because you have the vision, you want to execute this specific thing and you just don't have the like technical capability to do it yet. But it's kind of a similar message where if you're honest with people like, Hey, this is going to suck. Here's what you need to do. But this is, this is really going to suck along the way. And they start to, to walk into that with the expectation of like, Oh, this is the suck that they warned me about. I feel like it almost makes it easier to get through that part of it. And the, the, again, like this goes back to the world, you know, we're just bombarded with all of these kind of images of people who are super talented, super skilled. And what we don't see, what we're not shown is like the, the the process to get there, <laughs> which is just, you know, could be really, really tough. And it's really, really tough. You know, yeah, yeah. Okay. Some people are really naturally talented, of course, but nevertheless, for most people, when you see them uh, doing these amazing things, it, you know, and it's, there's an import, there's an, an instinct to think, oh, that must be like really, you know, that's, that looks cool. I want to do that. And it, you know, you get a couple of days in and you're like, oh, this is just sucks. So I think also we just have to be open and honest about, and I think that's happening actually in modern culture. You know, people are opening up about the struggle. They are talking more candidly about how hard it is to be a content creator, to be an athlete, to be uh, a musician. You know, these things don't just happen overnight, but it does take time. And I think we just need to keep hammering home that message. I think if I could just quickly go back to something that you brought up earlier, and I think it's really important when, when you say, well, where's the line? I think I think it just got me thinking, you know, we often also don't talk about the reverse side of this equation too, that when we go on that journey and we do hit those moments of success, right? Because we are going to hit moments of success. The the key, if if you want to really get into whether you're a perfectionist or not, the key to it is, is how do you respond to those successes? Because if you respond to that success with relief, that's to say, thank God I didn't screw up this time. Like I performed how I should have, I was expected to perform then really that's a telltale sign of your perfectionistic person because they just cannot enjoy the wins that they have. There's always something more. That's kind of the baseline they set for themselves. So that's how they expect it to. 
So essentially there's no kind of pride. There's no like amazing. This is great. Look at how far I've come. It's like, okay, yeah, fine. That's how I should have behaved or should have performed. Uh, I need to keep going. And thank goodness I didn't screw up. So I think that's also a good a barometer of the line here between the perfectionist and also someone that has a, a healthy way to strive that when they do have those successes, make sure you go overboard with praise for yourself, just as you would be compassionate with yourself when you fail. Like, amazing this is great this is a milestone reward yourself and don't be afraid to do that uh, and enjoy it really really embrace it because uh, your perfectionism will tell you all the time that you shouldn't enjoy those things satisfaction is fleeting and there's always the next thing but just take take a moment to enjoy that moment because it's such it's just as important as being self-compassionate when we fail i just want to say i feel personally attacked um because that idea of I succeed at something and in my mind it's well yeah that's what i'm supposed to do that like this is where i should have been the whole time so it's not something worth celebrating it's not something worth even stopping to recognize but then being so incredibly hard on myself when i don't meet that artificial bar um that has been the definition of my career so far so uh, definitely need to to take that advice myself something i i, I really love as well as this concept and maybe it's not even a concept, but the way that you just described it of viewing success as and failure as moments. So moments of success, moments of failure, uh, something about that phrasing makes both feel um, like ephemeral in a way like they're, 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 they're going to pass whether it's success and we're happy or failure and we're sad, like both are going to pass and Something about that feels really freeing to me. Yeah, I mean, on, there's some there's something very liberating actually. Again, with letting the flow of life wash over you and ensure, you know, making sure that, as I said, when those moments of success come into your life, that you you really you really grasp them and you relish them. And and again, when those moments of setback and failure come into your life, that again you're able to see the. Um, not the joy, but certainly the uh, the the satisfaction of 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 being on the journey and knowing that that failure means that you've actually pushed yourself out there, that you've actually tried to do something, and even though it hasn't gone well on that occasion, that's still a reinforcement of the journey that you're on. So again, you know, the, these are moments, and they will come and go. But it's so so important in those moments to recognise that how we psychologically um, respond to them has a massive impact on our well-being and our sense of purpose and uh and as and as we've discussed it's so important you know to deal with them in the health, in, in healthy ways so let's dive back into um the sort of like your your research on perfectionism you break it up into three elements so we've been talking a lot about socially prescribed uh the other two are self-oriented and other oriented could you explain what those are and and how you sort of see them playing out in day-to-day -day life yeah, so self-oriented is what most people would conjure up in their mind's eye when they think about perfectionism, the kind of quintessential overstriver. So perfectionism comes from within, so I need to be perfect and nothing but perfect. And when I haven't met that excessive standard, I'm very harshly self-critical of myself. Other-oriented perfectionism is perfectionism that's turned outwards onto other people. So that, you know, I expect you to be perfect. And if you're not perfect, then I'm very punitive and very judgmental and i'm going to let you know and combined alongside socially prescribed which is the sense that other people expect me to be perfect 
this is kind of a broad in, in, in its most broadest sense, our understanding of what perfectionistic perfectionistic people experience, you know, they experience thoughts and feelings associated with self, social and other. Um, they exp experience emotions and um, thought processes that are associated with those three elements of perfectionism. And so the, the kind of big breakthrough with this model was really to move us away from seeing perfectionism as just an individual characteristic that, that you know, we suffer uh, or we, we uh, manage with from within us. And that actually, you know, there's a much broader context to perfectionism, which has elements that are related to how we interact with other people. So those other related in uh, perfectionism, that's socially prescribed. Um, so that was the, kind of the big breakthrough of this model. And it's a really super useful model because if you talk to perfectionist people, they won't just say, oh, you know, I expect myself to be perfect. They will also tell you that they expect other people to be perfect, but also that the world around them expects you to be perfect. So it's a much broader, um, it's a much broader personality than just coming from within. Mm -hmm. So do you find that people tend to have elements of all three or is it sort of like a spectrum where you're maybe 60% self-oriented, 75% socially prescribed? Like how have you found this playing out? Yeah. So as I mentioned, the, the elements of perfectionism really exist on a spectrum. So we're not kind of a perfectionist or non-perfectionist, but like, you know, there's a kind of mean and some people score low, some people score high. And that's also, that's a really interesting thing about perfection. Actually, there's no one size fits all, right? So you could be high on self, low on social, maybe a little bit in the middle of other, but you could be another constellation of those three things. You know, every, every perfectionist person has a slightly different constellation of, you know, factors. I myself would probably score very high on social, um moderate on self and not very high on other um and i'm sure your listeners could probably place themselves on you know where they where they feel they might be on the spectrum of uh of their own kind of perfectionism um so yeah i mean it's 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 a useful framework we and with that framework we can begin to then examine relationships between these three elements and other things like you know depression anxiety um uh, rumination all of these kind of outcomes that we might think are related to perfectionism um so it's not just a tool that you know allows us to measure where we are ourselves but also allows us to do really cool research looking at what it predicts and so once we uh which i i, I really love this framework and and uh prior to this call i sat down and was just sort of honestly thinking about sort of where i fit into it um and i definitely have a very high sort of self-oriented uh I'm not, I think the socially prescribed is the part that I'm most surprised about because I wouldn't have thought that I I had a very high degree of that. But after listening to the TED talk, going through the book, like I definitely think that I do. Um, and similar to you, like I, I think I'm pretty low on sort of other oriented, uh, but I have been thinking a lot about how that affects, like, okay, I've mapped myself mapped myself in this, um, this framework, and I'm recognizing how I might be more of a perfectionist. And I think I am, I have these tendencies, and, and it might come from these places, like I'm doing this work to think about how I function in this way. Um, how does that affect my ability to perform on a day to day basis? How does that affect my productivity? How does it affect my my procrastination, my relationship to procrastination? Um, these are all topics I've been thinking about and talking a lot more about on the podcast, but I'd love to hear your take on it. Yeah. So that's the cool thing about uh, being able to measure perfection in this way is, as I said, we can really look at those relationships. We can look at how it interacts with 
procrastination, mental health, um, elements of performance, for instance, and 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 it and and what we find in that research is some unbelievably curious stuff, which you wouldn't necessarily expect when you think about perfectionism. So let's take performance, right? Like when we look at the data between perfection and performance, we find that socially prescribed self-oriented and oriented perfectionism have very weak relationships. And in some cases, no relationship with performance. And that's kind of like really curious because you'd think, wouldn't you, that at the very least, perfectionism would help us be more successful, right? Yeah, we know it has its emotional baggage and all the rest of it, but um, shouldn't it push us to, you know, to, to do great things? You know, all that work, all that effort. And um, we don't see that in the data. And the reason is twofold. One, because when we look at the research, we find that perfection is highly correlated with burnout. Right? So, you know, perfectionists push themselves really hard, but they push themselves too hard. So that impacts on their performance, clearly. But the second reason, and going back, going back to this idea of procrastination that you mentioned, is that we also see in the literature that perfectionists are world-class self-sabotages. So if, if you put perfectionists in a lab and you say, okay, here's a task. Let's say you give them a cycling task. You say, you've got to cover this amount of distance at this amount of time. Go. You should be able to do it based on your fitness. Go. They try really, really hard to meet the goal. And then you tell them no matter how well they did at the end, you failed. Or you didn't make the, the goal. You, you didn't. You just fall slightly short. And then you say, but don't worry. You got a second chance. So let's try again. Now, something extra, well, extraordinary happens in that moment because what perfectionists do after the first failure is on the second attempt, they just withhold their effort. They just say, no, I'm out. Like, I'm not going to try because you can't fail at something you didn't try. And remember, perfectionists, you know, are intimately responsive to failure. You know, it's, 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 it's failure is what it really unveils their inner flaws and deficiencies that they're trying to conceal. So that shame, that guilt, that embarrassment they feel is so fierce that if they think they're going to fail, they will withhold their efforts. Now, non-perfectionistic people do the opposite. <laughs> their effort doesn't change at all. If anything, it, it goes slightly higher on the second attempt. And so what we think is happening here is that perfectionism, just like that relationship with burnout, with, we see strong relationships with things like avoidant behaviors, procrastination, self-sabotaging behaviors. We're kind of trying to avoid feeling those really intense emotions. But of course, they're just damaged by the passage of time, right? Things come in late. Things are sloppier than they would have been if they're giving themselves time on task. And that compromises their performance. So this is the really cool thing about this framework. I, we, I started this talk by saying how much I was interested in the bigger picture. But actually, when you get into the weeds of this topic, there's also some fascinating stuff. And you see perfectionism has some really interesting relationship with burnout, procrastination, avoidant behaviors, which means they're no more likely to succeed. Um, so it's all pain, basically, for no real gain. Something that's... Uh, there's so much that I've been thinking about in my own like personal work life that, that this is crossing over with. Um, but something I've noticed about myself, and I think this is probably true for many of my listeners, uh, is that I am very, I've been using the word strategic. So I try to understand the situation as much as possible before jumping in. Um, I try to do as much research as I can before jumping in. Uh, and picturing myself in that lab situation that you just outlined, I think my initial response would probably be to withhold effort, but in the sense of 
trying to figure out what was the metric that led to failure. Um, and if that information isn't disclosed, then sort of just being frustrated and to your point, not trying as hard. Um, I have a friend, someone I'm, I'm really envious of in a lot of ways that, that I look up to in a lot of ways who I describe as being incredibly intuitive. So almost polar opposite of me just kind of jumps into things and it tends to work out really well most of the time. Um, and obviously these aren't extremely high stakes things, but there is something to, okay, I have this much more strategic personality. How do I start to lean more into the intuitive side and, and stop overanalyzing things as much as I currently do, but still get the benefit of like, there's obviously value in, in looking at what happened, how things learning from it, so on and so forth. So how do I like balance that? Well, it's really, uh, it's really interesting you bring up overthinking because overthinking is really such a, it consumes perfectionistic people, you know, that, and, you know, again, I myself am a perfectionist. And when I was preparing for the TED talk that I did, I just kept overthinking it all the time. It, it wouldn't leave my mind when I was in the bath, when I was going to bed, when I was at work, I just could not stop thinking about this talk that was coming up because I was so scared about screwing up, right? And this is why we overthink because we think it's the most fail safe method of making sure that everything goes to plan, right? That if we dot every I, cross, cross every T, if we cover absolutely all bases, then we will not screw up, right? And I have to say, I have never absolutely bombed a massive presentation using the overthinking method, but I've never nailed one either. And this is the thing about overthinking. Yes, it can help us to a certain extent, make sure that, you know, when we don't, we're not complacent, and that we don't forget our lines and all the rest of it, all those things that we, we worry about in our mind's eye, but it stifles the creativity at the same time. And that kind of really genuine sense of openness, being ourselves and showing our, our true personalities on the stage. I'm, I'm giving the example of a talk here, but it could apply to any area of our life. And, and so really, again, it's about trying to strike that balance between preparing but also allowing ourselves psychological flexibility to, to go with the flow of what's happening around us and to be ourselves essentially. Uh, and, and so, if, you know, again, it goes back to this kind of process that we've been talking about, trying to just let life in a little bit, let things happen, let the flow of life kind of surround us, go through us and almost embrace that unpredictability because that's where I think, we find ourselves in a, in a zone where we feel most human and that we're able to flourish and thrive. Um, so overthinking is not always bad, but we also have to leave space for our creativity to come into. So as we wrap up, um, so we've, we've been mentioning a lot, the 2018 Ted talk, um, that was, as I said, really eye opening for me. Uh, and it led to, or maybe it didn't lead to, but it, it occurred before the book. Uh, so you, you've since written a book, it's publishing next month, um, or rather, excuse me, it's publishing today. Uh, what changed between the two? So you, you did the TED Talk. I don't know how much time was between the TED Talk and you starting writing, but like what what have you seen that's shifted either in the data or just in your thinking on it? 
Well, the data has shifted markedly. So I, I wrote, I, I did that talk on the basis of my research paper. Um, we're four or five years down the line now since that paper's published and I updated the data for the book and we are seeing socially prescribed perfectionism really start to skyrocket now. So, you know, this book is even more important, I think, than it was uh, then. But I've also learned a lot. And one of the things, if I can critique my own work, one of the things that I would critique is that I put a little bit too much emphasis in that talk on our obsession with perfectionism when I think it's really a societal obsession that's transmitted through our own behaviors. And so the book really is a kind of a maturation of that thinking that focuses more heavily on the society and how society works and why it is that society makes us feel like we need to be perfect. And, and from there, following that through to its logical conclusion, right? Because many people talk about society and pressures in the outside world, and then they pivot to personal accountability and personal responsibility. I wanted to follow the social critique through to its logical conclusion, which is to say, yes, there are things we can do as individuals, but there are also things we must do as a society because we're only going to really uh, solve our shared tension is if we act collectively. And so really that was the, a kind of crystallization of the way I've been thinking in the last few years, as I wanted to write a book that really gives us, you know, is compassionate and gives us permission to embrace and accept ourselves knowing that none of, that this is not our fault that there's broader context these feelings so so that's that's basically where we are with the book. so the book is called the perfection trap embracing the power of good enough it's available now wherever you get your books and of course links to commonly used links are in the description of this episode is there anything i didn't ask you that you feel you want to share before we go Greg, no, that was great. We've covered a lot of bit of ground there. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, if it's all right with you, I'm also going to include some links to uh, uh, connect with you directly, whether that's your website or social media or whatever it might be. Um, but everything is in the description of this episode. So Thomas, thank you so, so much for spending time today. This was an incredible conversation. Uh, I had a great time, Greg. Thank you. Uh, and I can I just say you have a very, very, very good interview style. That was very relaxed, very direct questioning very clear. Uh, so I just wanted to say I really enjoyed that discussion. I appreciate that. Thank you. So Thomas's book, The Perfection Trap is available now wherever you get your books. Or of course, you can just click the link in the description of this episode. But I want to hear from you. Leave a comment before you go. Let me know what your experience with perfectionism has been. Now that you've heard the episode, do you consider yourself a perfectionist? I want to hear. Leave a comment before you go. And with that said, remember that all big changes come from the tiny leaps you take every day.